Good morning, everyone. We are in the book of John, and we'll be looking at uh, basically verse 30 through the end of the chapter, chapter 5. Um, but let me start by saying, through the book of John, we have seen one tremendous theme occurring week in and week out, and that is summarized in our little opening statement that Jesus, the Messiah, is the overcoming God King. Every step of the way, every moment, every interaction, every word, every miracle that he is performing, he is demonstrating and showing himself to be the Messiah, the overcoming God King. And it is my hope that by the end of this series, as I say every morning, that you will immediately know what to say when someone says, what is the book of John about? You will be able to say what? It's... All right, let's start all over. I, I blame that partially on, um, on you. <laughs> because it's written right up there in big lettering. So, hey, what is the book of John all about? It is about Jesus, the Messiah, the overcoming God King. Yes, and for bonus points, what is the book of Ecclesiastes about? Wisdom is correctly applied biblical knowledge. Uh, so, end of the Sunday school lesson. Uh, last week, in my email that I sent out, I asked a couple questions, and I got some very similar responses, and I need to clarify something, and this is a beautiful moment to clarify. In verse 29, and we looked at this last week, but there were some questions about it, verse 29 says this. Uh, basically, let me start in verse 28. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And the question that I was asked several times was, I, I'm not quite sure what it means if I've done good, I get eternal life, if I've done bad, I get judgment. I thought salvation and eternal life was based on being born again, being regenerated, having faith in Christ. But it almost looks like verse 29 is telling us that um, good works have a role and a place in whether or not we enjoy eternal life or we don't enjoy eternal life. And we know from the rest of Scripture, and I want to explain this just for a little bit, we know from the rest of Scripture that it is incredibly clear that our salvation, our relationship with God, is not based upon how well we do Christian living, whether we do more good things than bad things. There's no weight or balance that God looks at. He looks at just one measurement and only one measurement. Are you holy like I am holy? Meaning you have never sinned, you have never erred, you have never made a mistake, you are perfect just like he is but in the world we tend to use the terms good and evil oh they're a good person well how do you know you're a good person well you know what i've never ended up in prison for murder that's a good thing i agree but that doesn't make you a good person well i've never robbed a bank okay it's a good thing you haven't robbed a bank but that doesn't make you a good person oh tim i donate to charity when I have a little extra. Well, okay, that's a good thing to do, but it doesn't, it doesn't make up for the fact 
that you have sinned against God. Even one simple sin. Jesus is not talking in this context about weighing the balance, doing more good than evil. And we know that because <laughs> pretty much in Jeremiah 17, 9, Jeremiah tells us, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? That's our heart, the heart of human beings. We are sinners that fall short of God's glory. There is none that does good. No, not one lives righteously before God. We have all broken that relationship and we have become enemies of God. And it does not matter how you define what is good and evil according to the world's terms because God defines good in one condition, perfectly holy. If you are perfectly holy, you are good to go. If you are not perfectly holy and you've said even one single little white lie, you are not in the category of good before God. It also says in Psalm 14, verse 3, there is none who does good, not even one. If we're looking at God's definition of goodness, which is perfection and holiness, then no one can stand and say, I'm a good person, or they're a good person, or have any credit to themselves. This should not depress you, okay? This should not make you throw up your hands and say, oh, then nothing's worth it. If no one's good, I mean, then this is a really miserable world to live in. And um, I would say yes. Without the goodness of God in your life, it is indeed ultimately a miserable world to live in. It is punctuated by times of excitement and joy and happiness. I understand that. But it's not lasting joy, peace, happiness, and contentment in a relationship with God, which is vitally important that we have it right, that we have a right relationship with God. So how do we get that right relationship with God? How do we get into a relationship that the first part of verse 29 is true of us, that we come out and those who have done good to the resurrection of life? How do we count ourselves in that good category, that good camp? We want to be seen good by God because the promises and blessings of goodness is eternal life. How do I get there if I can't do it myself? Who does it for me? In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, we have the answer. Paul says, For our sake, God made him, that is Jesus Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. It is summed up in that verse, the key to goodness, the key to eternal life, the key to having a happy relationship with God the Father, the only answer you ever need is to acknowledge and know that you cannot be good enough for God, but God has given his son to be more than good enough for you. And he has given Christ as a gift to you to believe upon and rely upon and trust in and acknowledge and put your faith in and seek forgiveness from and mercy from and comfort from and he says, when you acknowledge me as your Lord and Savior, the goodness that I have, that is Christ, is yours. That is the only way you can be good enough for God 
is to have the perfection of Christ surrounding you, protecting you, and leading you. Any other standard of being good or bad or evil is insignificant. It doesn't mean anything. The only standard and definition that means anything to us is God's standard. God's standard is holiness. We cannot reach that standard. No matter how much we donate, how much we give, how much we volunteer, how much we help others, how much we love others, how kind we are, how generous we are, none of that matters. Because perfection is the standard. But Christ's perfection, he freely gives to you to make you righteous in his eyes so that he may accept you into heaven and enjoy the beauty and bounty of that relationship. So the goodness that God requires of us, we can't obtain. But he's provided the goodness for us. And we don't deserve it. We can't earn it. And we can't pay it back. That's why it's called grace. Undeserved, unmerited love and favor. And that can be anybody's. It can be yours because it costs you nothing. You don't have to get ready for it. You don't have to clean up your life. You don't have to make improvements to it. God meets you exactly where you are through the work of Christ and saves you utterly to the utmost the moment you believe. You are viewed in his eyes as righteous and perfect and holy. And that blows our mind that someone as beautiful as powerful, as majestic and merciful as God is, that he would extend that to people like us, fallen, flawed, and broken. He restores us to goodness. So that is how that verse 29 plays into the context and plays into the greater context of what does it mean if we're good. It means, are we one with Christ? Is Christ our Savior? Is he our Lord? Has there been change in our heart? Have we followed his example in John chapter 3 and been born again? Loving him beyond all measure. Having change in our lives to where there is now good works. Not to earn God's favor, but to demonstrate we are one of his children. Does it look like we're his children? All of this calls into play what verse 29 is talking about. That took me about 10 minutes to get through, so there was no way I could have gotten through that at the end of last sermon. So, again, if you have questions that come from the text that we're looking at in a sermon, let me know, and I'll dialogue with you. I'll talk back to you, or I'll talk with you, and if need be, if need be, we'll address it in the message, because if a lot of people have that question, then probably even more people have that question, they weren't even, you know, thinking about asking it. But please, feel free to ask it. So... We finished up last week's sermon now. Now we're on to verse 30 and the following verses all the way through 47 in chapter 5. And we're looking at basically answering the question, okay, how can all of this in chapter 5 at the beginning of the chapter, the first 29 verses, be true? How can all of this be true that Jesus Christ has authority, that he has authority from the Father, that he knows what he's doing, that he was right to heal the paralyzed man in chapter 4. Who gives him that right and authority? And Jesus lays out the reasons why, in very clear terms, he has this role as Lord and Savior. He clarifies for us exactly the proof 
behind why is this stuff true? Why is it true that he is the Messiah? Why is it true that he is the overcoming God King? Why is it true that he can promise eternal life to those who are good in God's eyes? How can he promise that? How can he heal people? How can he really display this power? And he goes on to explain, starting in verse 30, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now, who was the one who sent Jesus? The Father. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit had this relationship in which they said, as being one true God in three persons, how do we affect salvation? How do we bring salvation to a mankind who has rejected me? In the Garden of Eden, very beginning. And the Father devised a plan, an eternal plan, that the Son said, I will do. I will give myself as a sacrifice for your people that you may have an inheritance and that they may be beautified from the inside out, perfection and holy and righteous, just like the Father is. So the Son took that upon himself to be that deliverer, that conqueror, that humble servant that came and gave his life willingly to fulfill the Father's promise that he would save us. So Jesus says, this whole thing that's going on in chapter 5 and chapter 4 and the, the confrontation that I'm getting from the woman at the well in Samaria to the Pharisees and healing this man in Jerusalem, all of this conflict and all this suffering that's being thrown upon me, you need to know I'm just not doing this because I want to do it. There is something greater at play than just me trying to get a, a power place in Israel. He's doing it because the Father sent him to do this. And he explains that further. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. And that's, that's a truism in our life. If, if I say, um, uh, you know, I am the President of the United States. I can say that all I want. I can hand you a business card that says, Tim, President of the United States. I can go around telling everybody I'm the President of the United States. I can drive a car that has those stickers on it. I can maybe have a podium with the, the presidential seal on it. I can require everybody to call me Mr. President. Do I have to prove that, though? Of course I have to prove it. Just because I say it doesn't mean it's true. If that was the case, we'd probably all be kings, queens, presidents. I don't know why we'd ever want to aspire to be that, but maybe. The point is, I could tell you all sorts of things about myself. If I don't have proof and evidence behind it, it's just my word against your word. And so Jesus, even though he's the incarnate word, the fulfillment of God's word, he says, don't take my word for it. Because taking my word for it, you may believe me or not. That is why I have witnesses that prove beyond a shadow of a doubt what I'm saying about myself, that I and the Father am one, that I am the way to salvation, that I am the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world, that I am the one who brings peace to God's people. I have proof and evidence, not based on myself, but based on other testimony that shows Jesus who he is is true to his word. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. And so he says in verse 32, there is another who bears witness about me, 
And I know that the testimony that he, he bears about me is true. You sent to John. Now he's talking about John the Baptist way back in chapter 1. If you remember in chapter 1, John the Baptist is out there in the Jordan River. He's baptizing a lot of people. He's talking about repentance. The kingdom of God is coming. And all of Jerusalem, all of Israel is flocking to this guy because he's weirdly dressed as a mountain man, but he is having piercing words right to the heart of repentance. And people are repenting and being saved and turning to God from their false religions of obedience to a religion that is based on the heart of sacrifice that God shows us. And people are going to John in droves. And in chapter 1, it says that the Pharisees and some of the religious leaders sent to John a group of Pharisees to ask him questions and find out who is this guy. And they ask him, are you Elijah? No. Are you Moses? No. Are you the Christ? No. Well, who are you? I'm just one in the wilderness just telling you a story about Who's coming who is greater than myself? And then he sees Christ in the following days, and he proclaims. Let me just read those verses in John chapter 1, uh, verse 29 and following. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John saw and bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend upon or descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I bear witness that this is the Son of God. So Jesus says to all these religious leaders that are fussing about the fact that he healed a man on the Sabbath and broke all the laws, I'm not doing this because I have an ego that I am trying to push or an agenda that I'm trying to push. From the very beginning of my ministry, John the Baptist proclaimed exactly what I'm proclaiming now. And you acknowledged that he is a prophet. So are you claiming that John the Baptist is wrong? And if so, you're going to have a lot of people upset with you because you've already declared him to be a prophet from God. Little unusual, yes. Strange way of dressing, yes. Strange kind of way of doing things, yes but he's a prophet, acknowledged by the leaders of Israel. And Jesus says, so if you want to know about me, I don't have to tell you that I'm the Son of God. John the Baptist, a year earlier, already told you that. Already told you that he came to make my day known, to make my name present in your hearts and in your life, to confront you with the Messiah, who is the overcoming God King of all creation. So if you don't want to listen to it from me and take my word for it, listen to John. It says in verse 35, continuing this very thought, or verse 34, excuse me, not that the testimony I received is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. So he acknowledges, 
You guys respected him. You thought he was the next best thing since sliced bread, and you were excited about him, and you were going to be baptized by him. You were listening to his words. And I had a conversation a chapter later with one of your leaders, Nicodemus, talking about being born again. This should not be a surprise to you. You should know these things that I'm talking about. That the Son of Man had to come and suffer and die to make you good enough to enjoy the benefits of a relationship that includes eternal life. You should have known that. Verse 35, he was a burning and shining lamp and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. Well, what is Jesus' testimony that he has? Because he's already said, I'm the son of God, I'm the son of man, I'm here to save, I'm the Messiah, I'm the overcoming God, King. He's already communicated words, but sometimes words are not enough. We want to see proof. We want to see evidence. We want to see it for ourselves. And so Jesus says, I've got proof that's even better than John's. For the works that my Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So if the Pharisees were at all concerned, yeah, we heard John, we know what John said, and we all acknowledge John was a little bit eccentric. We all acknowledge the camel hair eating locusts and honey, weird mountain guy by the river throwing water at people, yelling at them to repent. But how can they dispute? How can they dispute the miracle of turning water into wine, shocking everyone? Everyone is baffled and confused and acknowledging there is something not magical about this guy, but miraculous about this guy. And then he has conversations with Nicodemus that cut to the heart of being born again. And then he has a conversation with the woman at the well in Samaria. Besides a crazy time for a Jewish man to be talking to a Samaritan woman, he cuts right to the heart of the matter. Well, yeah, you've had several husbands. We don't even know who your husband is right now. Piercing her to the heart, bringing her to repentance, showing her grace, and the whole town coming out and going, who is this guy? He speaks with authority and power, and people are getting saved left and right. And then someone comes to him and says, hey, I have a child that's sick. Come and heal him. And Jesus says, done, he's healed. And at that very moment, that child was healed from death. And then the next days, he's walking into Jerusalem and sees a paralyzed man, heals him on the spot, no magical incantation, just you're healed, get up and walk. And he does. And these Pharisees who are questioning Jesus' authority and ability and calling and questioning who he is, knows the man, saw the man, spoke to the man. If they want evidence, look, open your eyes, you have it. You have people that have seen and experienced miracles, and the Pharisees, you got the man standing right over there in the temple who is now walking because Jesus said, walk. What other evidence do you need to prove that Jesus is the Messiah, the overcoming God King? 
come in flesh to offer himself as a sacrifice upon the cross, the painful, unbearable agony of a cross. And he gives you that relationship for free. What other evidence do you need? John the Baptist bears testimony with, its word, with his word. And the Father bears testimony through the works of Christ through these examples so far. And there's many more that are going to happen in the book of John. It's not just those few. There's many. And John tells us at the end of John, hey, if I was to write down everything he did, there wouldn't be enough books in the world to talk about all the miracles he did. But here's just a few. He says in verse 37, And the Father who sent me has himself bore witness about me. His voice you have not heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. So Jesus says you had John the Baptist, you have my works that the Father gave me. Oh, and by the way, you got the rest of the book. And the rest of the book testifies that I am who I say I am. Through the promises and miraculous birth and now the work of Christ, you have all the evidence you need to know who I am. John the Baptist, who had never seen me a day in his life, recognized me. Behold the Lamb of God. People constantly are going to him. You are the teacher. Nicodemus, a teacher of the law, falls before him saying, teach me how to have a right relationship with the Father. Confused that he had to be born again, but shown gently what that meant and how he could have it himself. The testimonies bear it. And this is rather condemn, condemning on the part of Christ. He is speaking to a group of people now that are not his disciples, not his followers, but experts at everything Jewish and traditional. They are experts at the law. The Pharisees, and I've said it before, in order to be a Pharisee, to be considered part of the Pharisee class, you had to have memorized, remember what? The first five books of the Old Testament. They had to have memorized Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. My word, how many of us have the... Ten Commandments memorized, let alone the first five books memorized. I think we'd be hard-pressed. But these were experts that Jesus was talking to. He was the creme of the creme. These were the professors of the professors of the professors. These were the experts who had dedicated their entire lives to all things God-related through Scripture. And Jesus condemns them. It's the Scriptures that speak about me. And you don't know this? The same confusion that Nicodemus had. You, you say you're a teacher of the law and you don't even know this? That should be a tremendous warning to us that as valuable and as important and as necessary as God's word is in our lives and we should be reading it and meditating upon it and memorizing it and having it affect us every single day. I'm not discounting that. I'm encouraging that. But don't think for a second Knowing and memorizing scripture is your goal in life. 
That's not the goal of the Christian life, to be good at devotional time. Because the goal of the Christian life is to get to know Christ through Scripture, not to just simply stop and know Scripture and then not understand Christ. There's a huge difference between knowing Christ through Scripture and knowing Scripture. Do you know who probably has most of Scripture memorized? Satan. Satan is really good at twisting God's word and making it say what it doesn't say, but do you think he knows it? I think he knows it better than me as far as the facts of it. And there are a lot of people who know the facts of it far better than we will ever have. Their mind is just geared towards memorizing and reciting and figuring those connections out, whereas mind's not going to remember that. But it's not whether or not you remember it that's important. It's does it drive you to Christ or does it just simply drive you to more knowledge? And Jesus is condemning the Pharisees that their whole understanding of Scripture is just driven by knowledge, not by a heart relationship that is convicted and comforted by those words. They just memorize the fact of it. They don't know the heart of it, the meaning behind it, the life behind the words of Scripture. I would rather have one companion that knew one verse but lived it in their heart and knew it in their heart and it affected their lives and their actions and their works. I'd rather have that as my companion than someone who had the whole book memorized but still didn't know God, still didn't love him, still didn't honor him, still went through the motions. Who's going to be more of a faithful companion to encourage you towards godliness. The guy that knows one verse, not the guy who's memorized it all. Now he continues here in a, a, a rather difficult section of verses, verse 40 through verse 47. And um, continues on that very last theme where they have all this evidence, but they're rejecting it. You can have all this knowledge of Scripture but if all it is is Scripture, 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 and not your heart, then it's doing you no good. In fact, it is doing you harm. And Jesus goes through the next few verses and talks about some condemnation that comes from that attitude. Hey, I know. I, I've memorized the Word. I know what those verses say. I've done all this and this and this, and I've done this and this and this and this. How dare you tell me that I don't have a right relationship with God? Well, Jesus does. I don't. Jesus does. He says in verse 40, and let me just start in verse 39 again, even though we looked at that. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. Not the knowledge of Scripture. And it is they that bear witness of me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Jesus acknowledges there is an, an event that takes place where you are faced with the truth of God's word, his facts, the nature of who he is, what he's declared about himself, and what the three witnesses have already said about him, and you have to make the decision, who is this Christ? Is he who John the Baptist says is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world? Is he, as his works are proving, he's got power over all nature, including life and death. Maybe his words are authenticated because of that, and you have the rest of Scripture all pointing to Christ. And he condemns them because in all of that fact presenting, 
they still do not come to him for life. Who do they go to for life? Who are they trusting in for life? Who are they hoping will give them life? Their good works, their goodness, their own goodness, their own self, their own, I've done this but not this, or I've done this, but I've done more of this to make up for it. They're trusting in themselves. But Jesus is saying, in all of this, you don't come to the one person who can help you. Him. But in order to go to him, you've got to humble yourself. And if there is one thing that humanity is known for, it is not humility. It is, I'm most important. Look at me. Focus on me. Make me important. Give me, give me, give me. I want to be number one. I want to be number one. And Jesus says the way to eternal life in this relationship with God that is fulfilling, both convicting and contented, comes from being the last. Serve instead of be the served. Serve, give, love, lay down your life. Go the extra mile. Demonstrate that you don't have it together, but Christ does. And Jesus says, I'm the one who has life, and they don't want to come to me. They don't want to bow the knee of submission and acknowledge they can't do it. That is so hard for us to admit we can't do it. Because we base it on, I've done more good than evil. So maybe that makes me okay with God. Not according to the Son of God the Messiah, the overcoming God-King. That doesn't make you right with God. That still puts you at odds with him. He continues in verse 42, um, or, or verse 41, I do not receive glory from people. So Jesus is telling us, I'm not looking to be pat on the back and told me, you don't need to tell Jesus, you're a good guy. Hey, you know what, you got, you got our back. Thank you very much, good job. He doesn't need any good job, data boys. Because he knows as he stands, he stands because the Father called him to do it and he stepped up and he did it. Because that was his passion and nature to give himself for us. He doesn't need a pat on the back for doing what he was supposed to do. So he's not looking for a party or a plaque or a t-shirt made. Jesus is a good guy. Doesn't need that. He doesn't need our praise, like good job, but what does he need? What does he want? Come to me. I will give you life. That is what I enjoy doing, giving you life. And when that happens, all heaven rejoices and the angels stop what they're doing and they praise God for another soul saved. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. What terrifying words to hear from Jesus. I know that you do not have the love of God in you. You see, because these religious leaders felt, guarantee it, they felt they were the cream of the crop, they were the best of the best, they were the holiest of the holies, they were the closest to God that ever lived. All these other people, the, the other Jews, the other Gentiles, the other women, oh, pity on them. They got nothing on me. I am an expert at Judaism. I am an expert 
at God's word. I am an expert at all things temple-related and sacrifice. Ask me and I'll recite it from memory. But the one thing they lack is a loving relationship with God. Because you can't get that loving relationship with God through works, through doing more good than bad, from even doing good, good things, like tithing and serving one another and loving one another and forgiving one another. Because without Christ first in our lives, all of that is done to get pats on our back, to be recognized, to be acknowledged. If we are honest with ourselves, it's exactly what Scripture says. Verse 43, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. Jesus says there's a double standard here. People come to you all the time. You took John's word for himself that he's John and that he's a good guy, he's a great prophet. But when I come and I tell you something that's convicting, all of a sudden you don't want to hear from me. All of a sudden you challenge me. All of a sudden you say, I'm the one who's breaking the law, that I'm far from God. Jesus is the closest to God that ever was, and he gives us that relationship. They are far from God. Terrifyingly, they have no love of God in their life. They have a lot of things they can point to that they've obeyed, but they haven't obeyed the one thing that they need for eternal life, is to submit and repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 44 how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Jesus says, I know the heart of the problem here. You love the praises of other people. You love people recognizing you and saying, oh, aren't you Pharisee so-and-so? Aren't you scribe so-and-so? Aren't you Sadducee so-and-so? Aren't you serving on the, the high council of 70? Aren't you one of the high priests? They love it when they're recognized and acknowledged and praised and given the best seat. They love it when their name is reserved at a table. When they walk into a store and they all go, oh, rabbi, 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 thank you. They love that praise and accolade. But they don't love giving that praise and accolade to God the Father. They don't enjoy glorying in his name, his providence, his power, his uniqueness, his ability, his greatness. They feel theirs is greater than his. They draw and point people to themselves, not to the one true God. Verse 45, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. Well, that's probably exactly what they were thinking. You're accusing us. Who gives you the right to accuse? Oh, well, uh, John the Baptist confirmed it. My works of miracles confirm it. Oh, and by the way, all the scripture confirms it. But if that's not an odd evidence, that has to be sufficient evidence. So do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you. Well, who's this guy? Moses, on whom you have set your hope. Jesus just pulled out the ace. He laid all the cards on the table, and he had a royal flush, and he laid down that ace of spades and said, I got you. Moses himself condemns you. What? Moses is, in the mind of many of the religious Jews of this day, was the Christ. 
was the ultimate of all believers, Moses. They all aspired to be Moses. They wanted to be Moses because Moses was close to God, a friend of God, near to God, and saw him on Mount Sinai. Jesus says, even Moses, the one you point to as a spiritual father, says this about me. Verse 46, for if you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. You know that all of Scripture, and I know it might be hard and it might be a difficult challenge at times, but all of Scripture points us to the great uniqueness and ability that Christ has to save us to the utmost. All the laws in the Old Testament should make us go, I can't. And Jesus goes, you're right, I can. All of it points to him. All the sacrifices point to him. All the ceremonies point to him. All the stories point to him. All the great leaders of the faith point to him as the one. And so he says with absolutely confidence, you don't believe John. You don't believe the miracles. You don't believe my father's testimony in the word. You don't even believe Moses. Leaves them there. For if you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, then how, you believe, how will you believe my words? If they don't believe the greatest testimony of all, the words of Moses himself, how are they going to believe the words of Christ? What a hopeless position they are in for the moment. It reminds me of the words at the end of, uh, or at the beginning of chapter 4 in 2 Corinthians, which Paul says, Even now our gospel is veiled, but it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded their minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let the light shine out of darkness. The very words of John chapter 1. He has alone shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Our only hope, the only hope of the world who has rejected Christ because they're trusting in their own goodness is to believe the message that the Father presented to us through Christ and Christ alone. Let's pray. Our gracious Lord, our gracious Savior, thank you for these words of eternal life, of hope. And I pray, Father, that we would not rely upon our goodness or our deeds of merit, but that we would submit those to you and say, they are as filthy rags. We need the work of Christ to be complete and to have life. And thank you, Father, for giving us an opportunity to be good in your eyes through Jesus. In his name we pray, and all of God's people said, amen.